man is really a talented guy. <laughs> I have to say, that's pretty, those are some pretty impressive uh, skits. I, uh, I hope you're having a, a good weekend. This is the, uh, the second time for us to meet together, and I, I just have to say I've really been encouraged by all the missionary reports, and um, um, uh, it's so good to see so many familiar faces and uh, to be able to interact with you. And um, I, uh, it's, it's encouraging to see uh, there's so much change here. Of course, you guys don't see it. You're kind of a part of it, but you kind of come in from the outside, and this has been uh, part of my family and my life experience for a long, long time, this church and this body. And, uh, and so I come back, I meet new faces, I see old faces, and, uh, uh, but it's obvious that the, the Lord is at work here and uh, in, in doing his work of uh, reconciling the nations to himself through Cape Bible Chapel. I've uh, really appreciated uh, the times, uh, the missionary uh, uh, videos. And uh, man, it's uh, just encouraging to see the gospel go out and God's word being translated. Um, just as a reminder for those of you who, who weren't here uh, last night, we, we talked about the basis for missions, and we said that the basis for missions, let me just say for those of you who are actually here, if you remember, what is the basis for missions? The authority of Christ, good. I, I, uh, it's always encouraging to a speaker. You know, you read all these stats, and it's like, you know, they're only going to remember about 2% of what you say anyway. It's like, good grief, why write the talk? And uh, because the Holy Spirit works. And so I was, uh, I was telling Grant this morning, you know, that if, if they don't remember anything, I just hope that they get it's the authority of Christ that is the basis for missions. Today we're going to talk about the means for missions. That's the, the love of Christ. We're going to look at that more closely. But here's, this has been my prayer for the last uh, several weeks. I've been praying, number one, that in, in these talks, in these sermons, in this time, that you would see, first and foremost, uh, no matter what angle you take to missions, that Christ is always central to missions. Number two, I've been praying that the things that we talk about uh, that you would, would see would actually set a trajectory for your missions. Um, we talked about last night that how you launch something uh, sets a course for a success or failure. So it's really important that if we're going to reach the world for Christ and the basis for missions uh, is the authority of Christ, then obviously the authority of Christ has the power to set a trajectory that takes us to the whole world. Today we're going to be looking at a little bit different angle on this, not only the basis for missions, but the means for missions. If you would, just bow with me and, and pray, and we'll dive into God's Word. Father, thank you for this time together. Lord, we pray that you would captivate our hearts with Jesus Christ. Lord, he is not only the message of salvation, but he is the means, he is the motivation, he is our all in all. So, Lord, would you make him prominent during this time today, in Jesus' name, amen. If you have your Bible, turn to 2 Corinthians 5, verses 14 through 21. I'm reading out of the ESV. Before I do, I want to share a quick story with you. It seems like yesterday I was actually living here uh, in Cape during that time that we were talking about the invasion of Iraq. It was on all the television stations. It was on the news uh, constantly. As a matter of fact, um, I can remember I was officing 
uh, right over here is, is, is the buildup was taking place. And the buildup, it seemed like it took forever over there in the, the Persian Gulf. Um, and the question was not so much if we were going to attack Iraq. The question was when. Now remember, that question was posed to Colin Powell, who happened to be the, the Secretary of State at the time. And they asked him, it's like, Secretary Powell, uh, when is it uh, that we are going to invade Iraq? As if he would give all our top military secrets out, uh, you know, on CNN. But nevertheless, he was, answer, he was asked that question. And I'll never forget his response. He said this. He said, we will invade Iraq when we can do it with overwhelming force. And, you know, as I think about that, overwhelming force, this describes how I long for my Christian life and ministry to be. I want to have a life that is so powerful. It's, it's an overwhelming force. I want, I want for my ministry, I want to experience overwhelming force in my ministry. That is our desire if we're honest with ourselves, but it's not always our experience, is it? You know, sometimes, I have to admit, it feels like a little bit of a pipe dream that God would use me, since we're talking about missions, and you, to reach the world for Christ when I can't even get to my desired weight. <laughs> Think about it for a second. Let's reach the world for Christ, and I can't even get over to the YMCA to do my, you know, my bench press and, and stuff like that. You know, what I've found over the years is probably the greatest challenge to world missions is myself. That really is probably the greatest challenge to world missions as it relates to me. You know, there are several writers who would agree with me on that. A guy by the name of Roy Hessian who wrote the book Calvary Road. He says this in talking about the sins of the self-life. He says, only one thing prevents Jesus from filling our cups as he passes by, and this is sin in one of its thousands forms. The Lord Jesus does not fill dirty cups. Anything that springs from self, however small it may be, is sin. Self-energy or self-complacency and service is sin. Self-pity and trials or difficulties, it's sin. Self-seeking in business or Christian work, it's sin. Self-indulgence in one's spare time, sensitivityness, uh, touchiness, resentment, and self-defense when we are hurt or injured by others, self-consciousness, reserve or worry, fear, all spring from self and are all sin and make the cups unclean. That's convicting. Here's how A.W. Tozier says it in the book, The Pursuit of God. Here's what he says, to be specific, the self-sins are these, self-righteousness, self-pity, self-confidence, self-sufficiency, self-admiration, self-love, and a host of others like them. Here's what he says. They dwell too deep within us and are too much a part of our natures to come to our attention till the light of God is focused upon them. Where's that light going to come from? I mean, what he's saying here is they are strong. They are powerful, these sins that emanate from the self-life, where we draw our life from self, where we find our means for living our, from self, when we ultimately, we're all about glorifying self. And it takes on all different kinds of, of, of forms, but it all originates from that self-life. 
I would say that it's the greatest obstacle and barrier in missions is the self-life. Now, the question is, is there a force so strong that can overcome my self-life and at the same time set a course, set me on a course towards missions? And the overwhelming answer is yes. We see it here in this passage. And this passage answers that question. First of all, let me just share with you before we get into the passage, let me just kind of give you this passage in a nutshell. But first of all, this passage teaches us that if you are in Christ, you are an ambassador for Christ. If you are in Christ, you are an ambassador for Christ. You are a missionary. You are a representative. You are the one sent to represent Jesus Christ. And here's what this passage does, though. I think it teaches us four truths that I believe are helpful to overcoming the self-life, and it leads us to being good, effective, contagious ambassadors for Jesus Christ. That's where this passage goes. Let's look at the passage here. Follow with me as I read. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all died, and he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, there it is, but for him who rose for their sake, died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh. We regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God, making his appeal through us, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he has made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Wow, that's a powerful passage. And it sets a trajectory, it's Christ-centered, and it sets a trajectory for how we overcome the self-life and puts us on a path to being ambassadors for Christ. Let's talk about this. How does this, how does this affect us? Let me give you four points. Here's where I'm going with this if you like to take notes. As an ambassador for Christ, we are first of all compelled by the love of Christ. Number two, as an ambassador for Christ, we are also convinced by the cross of Christ. As an ambassador for Christ, we are, number three, committed to live for Christ. And finally, as an ambassador for Christ, we are called on behalf of Christ. Let's look at these things quickly. First of all, the ambassador, as an ambassador for Christ, we are compelled by the love of Christ. We see that in verse 14, right off the bat. Paul says this, he says, for the love of Christ controls us. Paul is a a missionary. He's planted this church in Corinth. And basically he's writing back. And this is a very interesting letter. But Paul is defending his ministry 
to the Corinthians. And, and basically, if you were to shut this down, uh, Paul is answering the question, what, made of the, what motivates you to live the way you do, to minister the way you minister? What motivates you to make the decisions that you make? So Paul is bringing us down into, he's answering this question. And here's his adamant answer is, for the love of Christ controls what I do. Why did you come here, Paul? The love of Christ. Why did you say the things you said? It's the love of Christ. Why did you do it the way you did it? It's the love of Christ. So Paul had planted this church. It had obviously been a rocky road. You can see it as you read it, all the different problems they had uh, going on. Um, He had dealt with some very challenging sin issues in the Corinthian church. And now he was dealing with some false apostles who were influencing the Corinthians against Paul. And so he's writing a response to that. And I think the Corinthians, to be quite honest with you, are not real sure what to believe about Paul. And Paul is is clarifying some things. He's setting some things straight. At the same time, he's teaching us some amazing things about the Christian life and what it means to be a missionary for Jesus Christ. So Paul gives an explanation of why he lives the way he lives. And by doing so, he challenges the Corinthians. But basically, here's what he's saying here. When he says Christ's love compels me or controls me, he's saying three things. Number one, he's saying Christ's love gives me a passionate desire to please Christ. So when he says the love of Christ controls me, he says, man, what Christ has done, his love for me, gives me a passionate, contagious desire for Jesus Christ. See, one of the things they were doing is challenging his lifestyle. I mean, think about it. Just look at it at face value for a second. Paul goes kind of from town to town, and, and what happens to every town he goes into? He gets beaten with rods or stoned or flogged or put in jail and rested. And, um, you know, and, then he's, and then usually he's thrown out of town, and what ends up happening? He comes back to the same town. So what they're doing is they're questioning, you know, Paul's undignified lifestyle. Seriously? An apostle would live this way? Paul says, absolutely. You don't understand the love of Christ if you don't understand the trajectory of my life. When you understand the love of Christ, what happens is it fills your heart with gratitude. It fills me up to the point that I'm overflowing. And therefore, there is no sacrifice I'm not willing to make. There's no beating I'm not willing to take. I'm even willing to look like a fool for Christ's sake. That's how powerful his love. I'll do anything. God's love, Christ's love, compels us by giving us a passionate desire for Christ. But there's another way in which Christ's love compels Paul. It purifies our motives. You see, one of the things that that Paul is being challenged on here again is just what kind of credentials does he have? Can we really trust this Paul guy? They accuse him of self-promotion, and and then they they even bring up the fact that, you know, know, he really seems to be a troublemaker. And usually when you find troublemakers, what do you usually think in your heart, in the back of your mind? You're thinking, okay, you're talking about this guy is just kind of, you know, he's he's self-promoting. And, and so he's creating trouble and stuff like that. And, uh, you know, I, I've seen some of that uh, in the NCAA tournament already. There's just some guys who are all about bandstanding and wants everybody to, to look at them. And in a sense, this is exactly what Paul 
is being accused of. And, and so these guys are bringing these, you know, I don't, I don't know exactly what they're, they're bringing, but, you know, these credentials, these unbelievable plaques of I am important, I am somebody, and they're contrasting. It's like, look at your pathetic Paul. And so they're challenging his credentials. But see, the love of Christ, Paul says, it purifies my mother. Here's what the love of Christ did for Paul, is it created an amazing humility. Paul even goes on to say, actually, this love of Christ stripped me from all the things that I used to, 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 to build up and put on my resume and to, you know, to promote myself and everybody so everybody would know how important I was. He said, now I consider those things dumb. They're doo-doo. They have no relevance in my life whatsoever. Paul says the things that used to give me significance and make me feel important, the love of Christ has stripped me of those things. You see, the love of Christ, on one hand, it fills us with the passion and desire to, to please him. On the other hand, it strips us and it empties us of self. Here's, here's When you really get down to studying this word in the Greek, this word control, it's translated here in the ESV as control. Some passages, uh, some translation translates it as compels. <coughs> Either one is fine, but I think control is probably the more accurate word because here's what the word actually means in the Greek. It means that the love of Christ leaves us with no alternative but to live for Christ. It is so powerful, it leaves us with no alternative but to live for Jesus Christ. You know, since we're talking about missions, this is such, this, uh, this gospel stands in such contrast, the Christian life stands in such contrast to Eastern religions. You know, in most Eastern religions, the, the focus in those religions is all about emptying yourself. And so the goal, the way you live that type of religious life is to empty yourself of all kinds of distracting thoughts and empty yourself. And, and my question for that is what are you left with? An empty shell of self, I guess. So you just empty yourself. The Christian life is just the opposite. God's love, Christ's love, yes, it has an emptying impact on our lives. It brings us to repentance. So we're spewing out our sin in confession and repentance and humility and brokenness. At the same time, it doesn't leave us in that state we're also being filled with God's love so that we're actually controlled by God himself. And so there's an emptying and there's a filling at the same time. That's the Christian life. And that's why Christ's love is so different than any other gospel out there. It empties us and it fills us at the same time. And it leaves us with no alternative but to live for Christ. David Livingston, the great missionary, <laughs> I went to visit there uh, at Westminster Abbey. I wanted to find his, see his grave. And, and, uh, and you know, we walked all over that place, and it's a pretty impressive. And finally, I just went over to one of the priests, and I was like, you know, hey, where's David Livingston's uh, grave here? Where, you know, he's buried here somewhere. And uh, he said, you're standing on it. And I looked down. And, you know, you've got all these different people. I mean, Darwin, and it just, I, I don't even want to go into all that. But I'm, I'm thinking in my mind, man, this is the most prominent missionary, one of the most prominent missionaries in our history. 
This is a guy that opened up the whole continent of Africa to the gospel and, and literally all he gets is a little plaque down here on the floor and people are walking all over it and you can't even find it. David Livingston, let me tell you a little bit about him. He was a missionary to Africa back in a time where there were no paved roads there. He endured malaria countless times. He walked back and forth across the interior of Africa to the tune of 27,000 miles. This is back in the 1800s. He survived nonstop dysentery, virtual abandonment over and over again, ongoing hardships due to the slave trade that he was trying to expose. He lost his wife and two of his children to sickness during the course of this time. One time when he came back to England, he was asked why he became a missionary to Africa. He replied without skipping a beat, I was compelled by the love of Christ. The love of Christ is powerful. At the end of his life, he was found in a remote hut in the interior of Africa in a kneeling position, dead. His journal revealed that he died while praying for the people around him there in Africa. The peoples of Africa cut out his heart and planted it under a tree, declaring that Livingston's heart is with us. You can take his body, but his heart is here in Africa. David Livingston went to Africa because he had no other alternative. The love of Christ was so compelling. The love of Christ was so controlling. It left him with no alternative but to go exactly where God wanted him to go. Well, as an ambassador for Christ, we are compelled by the love of Christ. But secondly, as an ambassador, we are convinced by the cross of Christ. Look at what he says there. As he talks about Christ's love, he immediately switches gears a little bit. He says, for the love of Christ controls us, and it leads us to ask the question, well, how did you get to that point that Christ loves you? And basically, here's what he says. He says, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all died. And he died for all. So he immediately, in answering this question, he takes us back to the cross. Where does his conviction, his deepest, most profound conviction about God's love for him exist? Right there in the cross. And if you're going to be compelled by the love of Christ, you have to be convinced, first of all, by the love of Christ. And if we're going to be convinced, you have to be persuaded by the evidence. That's why he says, because we have concluded this. This wasn't just thought, I mean, it wasn't just a superficial thought through thing and sentimentality or, or anything like that. Paul really examined the love of God. Why would I conclude that God loves me in this way? You know, one of the, the things that I, I see sometimes, that sometimes I'll send uh, some guys I disciple out on this evangelism assignment. assignment. And, and I'm really one of these believers that, you know, you can sit around and, and talk about it and read about it and stuff like that, all, all that you want to, and you're probably not going to get a whole lot of action. And so I tend to be action first, and then let's develop our convictions as we go, but get them going. And so one of the things I, I tell these guys, it's like, here's what I want you to do. We're going to do evangelism. Oh, no, man, that's scary. And it's like, I just want, I just want you to do one thing. I want you to go out, and I want you to ask people this question. How would you describe God? That's pretty non-threatening. 
Just, just ask them. Just get in a conversation with some of your friends. It's like, hey, Jimmy, how would you describe God? You know, and inevitably, here's the usual answer that people get. God is loving. Okay, that's a good answer. But then you take it a step further, and this is what it's always revealing. Those guys come back. I talked with them, and I really got in this great conversation with it. It just all I needed was a question to get into it. But, but here's some follow-up questions. How do you know that he's loving? Don't have much of an answer for that one. What about, you know, what does God's love look like? Uh, don't have much of an answer. And what you find is a view of God's love that is uninformed and based on mere sentiment. And you know what? They have a superficial view of love, and therefore God's love impacts their lives very superficially. Yeah, they know the right answers, but they don't know what's behind all that. So, if we want to see maximum impact, in order for Christ's love to have maximum impact in our lives, it must be built on deep conviction, and that deep conviction must be rooted in the cross. Let me give you three reasons why. Number one, all of God's attributes can be seen at the cross. His mercy, his justice, his wrath, his love, his grace. You could go on and on. They're all seen right there at the cross. That's not the only place to see them, but we can see them all there at the cross. Number two, the cross displays the consummation of God's attributes as seen in his purposes in history. Let me say what, tell you what that means. So we see God's love in the Old Testament, don't you? But here's what you see at the cross, is you see God's love coming in history in all his purposes, and they converge right there at the cross and gives us an unbelievable display of all of history, all of God's purposes, all of God's character converging and consummating right there at the cross. It just all comes together at the cross. Number three, the cross reveals the facets of God's attributes. So you can see the nuances of, of God's attributes there. So, so you take love, but love is, is like a diamond. It's got all, it's got hundreds of facets to it. And God wants you to see all of them. You can see them best at the cross. I remember several years ago, my dad uh, bought me a new television. We were really excited. And, uh, and I'll never forget, the first thing we wanted to do, it was, it was at this time about six or seven years ago, and we were wanting to watch the Final Four. And I, I think he was just tired of watching my television and so he comes in, it's like, son, I ain't buying you a television. And so we get it all set up, and we get it on, you know, television, watching the NCAA tournament. And I remember Bob Costas, for some reason, was, was up there, and, and I was like, oh, good grief, Dad, what is, what's wrong with this face? And, and this, was, this is what he said there. He said, son, uh, that's HD television. You know, welcome to big boy television, son. It's like, wow, you know, and you could, the, the thing was, is I was used to, I'd had the same television for 20 years, and, uh, you know, and all of a sudden now you could see Bob Costa's wrinkles, and you could see where they tried to powder his face and do all this kind of stuff, and the point is, is that, you know, high definition just lets you see what you never were able to see before. That's exactly what the cross does with God's love. It lets you see all the nuances and the, and the, the crevices and the, and the small parts and the, and the things that you may not see in ordinary circumstances. God's attributes are to be understood at the cross. So he says there that one has died for all, therefore all died, and he died for all. So Paul unpacks God's love 
through the cross. And I wish we had time to just do that, just unpack how he's doing that. But, but basically, he's, you, can, you can see here, if, if we were looking at love on the cross, you could see that God's love is, is, uh, is sacrificial. You could see that God's love is transformational. You could see that God's love is unconditional. You could see that God's love is invincible. You could see all these different dimensions. Let me take one because it's right here in the, in the passage. God's love is unconditional. We see that Jesus died as a substitution for us on the cross. And, and here's the dimension of the love. Here's how we see that it's unconditional. The measure of his love continues to increase my understanding when I consider the unworthiness that I have for his love, to the, be the recipient of his love. So, I look at the cross. Here's what we understand. And, and Paul, you can go to other places and see as he looks at God's love on the cross. Here's one of the things that he sees. But God demonstrates his own love toward us. And that while we're yet sinners, Christ died for us. So he's giving us a dimension of God's love through this passage as he sees it at the cross. God's love is unconditional. Here's essentially what he's saying there. When God demonstrates his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The cross help us, un, helps us understand this facet here that the proof that God loves us unconditionally is the fact that he initiated it to us when we had nothing to merit it. Isn't that beautiful? God initiated his love to us on the cross when we absolutely did nothing to merit it. There was nothing uh, in us that would draw out God's love. He loved us when we were unlovely. He loved us when we were in rebellion. He loved us when we didn't have our lives together. You know what this does? This gives us amazing security in our lives. Here's a couple of things. That just, if I just were to spell it out for us, that it, it means that, that the Christian life is not about performance. How do I know that? Because he initiated his love to me when I was not performing very well. As a matter of fact, I was at the absolute bottom of the pit. That's when he initiated his love for me. Here's another thing that it means. It means this, that nothing you can do can make him love you more. Think about it. He initiated his love to you when you were at the bottom of the pit. So there's nothing you can do now that can make him love you more than he loves you. And you know what? There's nothing you can do that can make him love you any less either. God demonstrates his love toward us and that while we were sinners undone, that's when he initiated his love for us. See, we are so trained by the world system of love. And that's, many times, that's why we don't have a whole lot of power in the Christian life and in our ministry is because we're operating off the world system of love. Let me share a story to illustrate this. We have my friend, um, Curtis, uh, had a daughter. And uh, this was his uh, third child at the time. And uh, uh, he found out his daughter um, had Down syndrome. And, and he kind of shares the story this way. He said, we were in the hospital, and, and uh, he said, you know, we had already had two other children. And, uh, and he said it was, it was uh, you know, it was so excited. The baby came out, and we're, everybody's elated and jumping up and down and clapping and so on and so forth. He said, when this baby was delivered, uh, it was totally different. They immediately rushed her out of the room. There was a complete silence. There was a, a scurry of activity going on. A doctor came in the room and brought me to his office, and he sat me down, and he said in tears, he's like, you know, Curtis, I am so sorry. And he started crying, and he said, you know, your daughter has Down syndrome. 
And Curtis, being a strong believer and really understanding the love of Christ, says, it's okay, this is God's will. We're so excited to have this child. This is God's blessing. And we're going to do everything we can to help this child understand the love of Christ. And, 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 he, and he describes a story. He goes over to the window and he starts looking at all the babies. And already this baby is having to deal with the world system of love. All the pretty babies are over here. And this baby is set over to the side. And he asked the nurse, he said, nurse, I need to get to my baby. Can I go over there and sit down with my baby? And he kneels down beside his daughter. And he says, Kristen, I love you. Kristen, I love you. I love you. I love you over and over again. The irony of the story, <laughs> as Kristen began to grow older, Curtis said, probably other than the cross itself, Kristen has taught him more about the unconditional love of God than anyone else that he knows. This is how he describes his daughter. He says, Kristen always forgives people. She loves people so deeply. She always forgives people. She always gives affection to people uh, indiscriminately. He described a scenario where they went to a restaurant and there was a, a burn victim and, uh, you know, uh, just a situation that, you know, the person would be almost unrecognizable. And out of all the people uh, in the room that she picked out that she wanted to, to, to connect with, it was that person. He says she walks across the room and she just puts her arm around them and just sits there at their table. How precious is that? Kristen always um, described they would enter her in, in a, a basketball league and he said one of the funniest things, uh, and this guy was an athlete, he said you go to the game and these kids are all playing with each other and the funny thing is is whenever the opponent scores the whole game stops and everybody on both teams comes around and hugs everybody they're excited for your victory uh, as they are their own victory he said that she never holds a grudge this is a picture of God's unconditional love and we're so conditioned to the world system we have got to see God's love at the cross. It's, man, it's amazing to see it in Kristen's life. But when you go to the cross, it is the climax of God's love. We see it most invincibly there. So, as ambassadors for Christ, we are compelled by the love of Christ. We are convinced by the cross of Christ. But here's the impact that it has. Number three, we are committed to live for Christ. Here's what it does to us. That those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. See, his love for us doesn't just get us into heaven. It changes the whole trajectory of our lives. That's what we have to understand. It doesn't only bring us into the family. It sets us on a journey with power. It gives us no alternative. As a matter of fact, there's really only two alternatives. There are only two options in our lives as described in this passage. We can live for self or we can live for Jesus Christ. And so in our trajectory in moving towards being ambassadors for the world, we can never separate our relationship and understanding the love of Christ from mission. Think about how Jesus called his disciples in Matthew 4.19. He said, come and follow me and I will make you what? Fishers of men. So following Christ, intimate with Christ, understanding his love as we follow him, 
produces something in our lives. It makes us live for Christ, yes, but it sends us on a trajectory to make fishers of men for Christ, to make us his ambassador. And that leads us to our fourth point. And this is why we're here at a missions conference. It eventually climbs the ladder and it makes us ambassadors on behalf of Jesus Christ. And here's one point I would make. This is the only thing I'm going to say about this because our time is running out, is this, <laughs> that an ambassador views the world differently. Because of the love of Christ, being seen at the cross of Christ, resulting in life lived for Christ, and therefore trajecting us or setting us out on a course to be ambassadors for Christ, one of the things that if you trace it all the way back, the love of Christ radically changes the way that we view people and things around us as an ambassador. Look there at verse 20. It says, therefore, I'm sorry, actually, verse uh, 16. In verse 16, it says, from now on, Therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh. We regard him thus no longer. So, as God has made us his ambassador, he changes the way we think. Specifically, probably when he says this, that we view Christ according to the flesh, he's probably referring back to his Jewish days, back in his pre-Christ days, where when he looked at the cross, it was he looked at it through a very superficial, worldly lens that this is Jesus. He probably looked at it according to Jewish tradition that this is Jesus, and therefore he's on a tree, he's on a cross, and therefore he is a curse. He got part of it right, but that's probably where he left it. Now that he's on the other side of the cross, he looks back and he sees it entirely differently. He views Jesus entirely differently. This is not just a, 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 a misunderstood, accursed person who is claiming to be God, this is my God. He's the Lord and Savior of the universe. Changes the way he viewed Christ. But it also changed the way he viewed other people. Probably up until that point in his life when he came to Christ, he probably viewed people in two categories. They're either Jews or non-Jews. They're either Jews or Gentiles. Paul said that Christ, the love of Christ, has changed the way he thinks about everything. Let me give you some examples. It changes the way we think about our job. Our job is more than just a place to make a living. It's a mission field. It changes the way we view retirement. Retirement is more than an opportunity to play golf. It's an opportunity to shape young leadership for the church. My yard sale income could be used to support a young person's mission. It could be used for that couch, but it could also be used something else my living room is more than just a place to watch tv it's a place for praying for my family for the missionaries that we support a world atlas becomes more than just something i i learn and become familiar with just to pass my world geography class it becomes a place that lets me know it becomes a visual so that i know where the most unevangelized countries are around the world you know, for my children lately, and I brought my son with me, Grant. Uh, he has recently started seeing his football team as a mission field. He just recently started an evangelistic Bible study. Yes, he's there for football, but there is a more ultimate calling as to why you're on the football team. My daughter, just a year and a half ago, decided that she wanted to be moved out of this classical Christian school that we were in uh, to the school that my son was in 
which is a center, uh, 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 a city school there in Memphis. And, and her reasoning is that I want to reach people who are not like me, who don't know Christ. And so she surrounded herself uh, by all different kinds of people from uh, atheists to Hindus to Jews. And there's one girl whose who's, uh, father is a Hindu uh, Indian and, and his, her, her mother is uh, a Jew. And so we call uh, the girl a Hindu. And, uh, and so, and she's an atheist. She doesn't buy into either, you know. But the point is, is they're seeing their school completely different. That's what the love of Christ does. College students, you've got to see your summers differently than the rest of the world sees them. You'll never get this time to train and prepare to live out your walk with Christ and to have an impact on others like you do now. Use your summers wisely. It changes the way I view people. It changes everything about my life. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God is making his appeal through you. How do we get there? How do we get to the point that we embrace it? We don't try harder. We don't just simply read more books about missions. We don't simply just come to missions conferences, although I'm really glad you're here. It's the love of Christ demonstrated at the cross of Christ, leading to a life lived for Christ and ultimately being sent out as ambassadors for Christ. May Christ be glorified. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time. Again, Lord, we ask that you would set a trajectory for our lives that would be powerful, that would look like overwhelming force. Lord, would you be that in our lives? Would Christ's love take hold of our hearts and send us out into the world? In Jesus' name.